Thank you, David, Pastor Dylan, and all of your extended family from near and far. Appreciate your treating us to that. That What we've just heard sung, as David said, is a musical setting of Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 8. It is beautiful and mysterious Hebrew poetry written by the wisest person in the Bible not named Jesus. It's King Solomon, an aged King Solomon, writing near the end of his life and reflecting on all that he had seen and learned. And teaching us, in fact, he calls himself the teacher in Ecclesiastes, teaching us about God. And these words have kind of a pleasing ebb and flow to them. They seem to contain wisdom and beauty. But what do they mean? And more to the point on this New Year's Day, why should you care? Well, let me tell you a story from my freshman year of college at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. This is a picture of the basketball court right outside Granville Towers, which was my residence hall. In the spring of 1989, oh gosh, I'm old. Anyway, <laughs> I played dozens of pickup basketball games on this court. But this one particular day was a very special day, a rare treat for us, because in North Carolina, where UNC and Duke and NC State are all located very close to one another, basketball is a significant religion. <laughs> and the men's varsity basketball team are revered as big men on campus, both metaphorically and literally. They are very big men, and they walk on campus. And after their season is over in the spring, once or twice, some of them would come out to this court and they would play pickup basketball with whoever happened to be out there. And this uh, spring day was very exciting because word had gotten out. Word had gotten out, hey, I think some of the varsity is coming out to play today. And uh, this was, so there was a big crowd that had gathered, picture just, just rows of people around this court on the brick wall uh, covering that fence, uh, people kind of trying to look to see. And uh, I wasn't going to get to play, which um, was not a disappointment to me on this day. I know you, looking at me, you wouldn't think I'm much of a basketball player, but although I am short, I am also slow. However, <laughs> on this day, I was a spectator. But it was okay, because I had a friend named Ken, and Ken was gonna get to play. Ken fancied himself a pretty good basketball player, and uh, he was in a Bible study with me, and so he was gonna get to play against some of these varsity men's basketball players. And I didn't see there was any way if we could lose, because if either Ken was gonna play really well, and that would bring us great joy, or Ken was gonna get spanked, and that would bring us great joy. So sure enough, uh, some of these guys, about four of the varsity, come striding out, and uh, they kind of choose up teams, and a bunch of us are, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. And then they tip off, and su surprisingly, the guys who aren't on the varsity team, Ken's team, they're doing pretty good, because the varsity are kind of in cruise control. They're just going half speed. They're just, they're just kind of having fun. They're not really all that competitive with this. And I was excited for my friend Ken, some of us were watching and talking about, because Ken was trying to play it cool, but Ken was really focused, really intense. This was going to be a story he could tell his grandchildren if it goes well. And so the 
the uh, varsity team is on the far end of that court that you see, and they're bringing the ball up the court, and uh, one of the guys makes kind of a lazy pass, and my friend Ken intercepts the pass near midcourt. And I'm thinking, hey, this is great. Good news for Ken. He's got the ball, and he's heading the other way to score. Bad news for Ken is there's only one guy between him and the basket, and that guy is J.R. Reed. Next slide. <laughs> J.R. Reed, who on his freshman year was on the cover of Sports Illustrated. J.R. Reed, who that season had been a first team All-American. J.R. Reed, who would leave school after that summer and be drafted in the NBA and play a number of years in the NBA. J.R. Reed, who was six feet nine inches tall, 255 pounds of sheer basketball badness was the obstacle my friend Ken had to overcome. <laughs> and as Ken was dribbling and sizing up what he was about to do, J.R. Reed issued a proclamation to his teammates who were still at the other end of the court and to all of us gathered spectators. It was a proclamation of three words, three words that would prove prophetic. J.R. Reed in his very resonant baritone, said, I got it. <laughs> J.R. Reed speaks from on high, because when you're six feet nine, everything you say comes from on high. And so Ken had a decision to make, split-second decision. He could attack the basket and try to score over J.R. Reed, and I think Ken intuited that that was not going to go well for him. Or Ken could have stopped. He could have stopped and just kind of waited for his teammates to get back to that end of the court. But if he did that, J.R. Reed's teammates would get back too, and eh, his steal might have gone for naught. So Ken did something I thought was a pretty good idea. Ken pulled up for a jump shot when he heard J.R. Reed say, I got it. Because what J.R. Reed was communicating to his teammates and to all of us is that no matter what this diminutive Caucasian attempts to do with the ball, he will not be putting it through this hoop on my watch. Well, Ken pulls up from about 20 feet out, and he lets go what looked like a textbook jump shot to me. I thought when it left his hand, oh, that looks good. But true to his word, J.R. Reed rose up from the earth, and boy, oh boy, did he got it. He smacked that ball over the brick wall, over the heads of the spectators, into the parking lot. I think it stopped bouncing somewhere in the next county. <laughs> J.R. Dunn got it. Now, what does that have to do with Ecclesiastes 3? Let me bring this over to what we just heard sung. The author of Ecclesiastes, an aged King Solomon, is telling us that in everything that is, every part of life, God has given an order and a plan and a purpose to it. In other words, God's got it. No matter what has happened in the year just past, no matter what's going to happen today and in the year to come, God's got it. God has ordered a time for everything in life. This means we live in an ordered universe. We do not live in a universe of chaos, and randomness, and chance. 
at least nothing that is outside of God's permitted will. Solomon, our teacher, lists 14 extremes suggesting totality, time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, time to uproot, time to kill, time to heal, on and on. And he says each one has its time. And in verse 11 he says, he has made everything beautiful in its time. And you might render that Hebrew word appropriate in its time. It's like God has this giant cosmic iPad and he's just sort of ordering things in the universe according to his plan. And these verses, the rhythm of these verses, sounds pleasing and reassuring to us, but there are two disturbing implications. Two disturbing implications of Ecclesiastes 3. The first is, we're not in control. We dance to a tune not of our own making. Verse 2 says, there's a time to be born and a time to die. These are probably the two biggest life events that we're going to experience. And both of them are totally or largely outside of our control, right? Show of hands, how many of you in the room have been born? Good, I thought so. How many of you who didn't raise your hand are paying attention? No, okay, that's right. <laughs> you had no control over when you were born or even that you were born. You had no say in that. And I hope you will have no control over the day that your life ends. Probably, you know, we're all going to die if the Lord tarries to return. And so everyone here, yes, all of us were born, but we had no control, no say-so over that. And all of us are going to step into eternity out of this life at some point, and probably we won't have any say over that. It'll just happen, expectedly or unexpectedly, a time to be born and a time to die. You know, you could be the president of the United States of America and still not be the head of your own family. You could be a military general who, during your career, commands legions of troops and sending them into battle and ordering them different parts across the world and spend the last days of your life on earth dependent on nurses and other medical staff to help you with your most basic bodily functions. We dance to a tune not of our own making. We're not in control. So I have a New Year's resolution to suggest to you, for those of you who make those. How about you resolve this in 2023? I'm going to stop trying to control the things I cannot control. You'll actually find it very freeing. And maybe you'll have a much happier 2023. You know, think, there's so many things. I know people who spend so much energy trying to, trying to present themselves in such a way that other people will like them or other people will do what they say. And I'm just like, you know, I can't control what other people think about me. I can't control uh, what other people say about me. I can't even control what somebody else says I said. So worry more about your character and less about your reputation. Your character are the actions you choose, how you choose to react to things that happen. And let your reputation take care of itself. God knows your heart. God knows the reality of the situation. God knows who you are. Quit trying to control things you can't control. You can't control foreign events. You can't control the economy. You can't control things that people in your life choose to do or not do. 
You know, one thing I learned a long time ago is when I stop worrying about uh, controlling what I can't control, it helps my prayer life. Because there's a lot of things going on in the world, a lot of things going on in my world. I can't control, and so what? I pray to the one who is in control. I pray to the one who does have a say in what happens. So the first disturbing implication, a time for this and a time for that, is that we aren't in control. And the second one is, nothing lasts. Nothing lasts. Nothing we pursue has any permanence to it. The text stresses the brevity and the impermanence of our activities. Yeah, there's a time to build, but there's also a time to tear down. Yeah, there's a time to plant, but there's also a time to uproot. Show of hands, how many of you have ever visited the capital of Virginia, the town of Richmond? Richmond, Virginia. Ever been there? A few of you? Yep. First time I went to Richmond, Virginia, I was young. Our family was driving uh, from the Carolinas north to visit Washington, D.C. We stopped in Richmond. And Richmond has a beautiful tree-lined boulevard right down the center of it. You can't miss it. They call it Monument Avenue. And the first time I visited Richmond, Virginia, Monument Avenue had these very impressive statues. There was a statue of Robert E. Lee. Uh, son of Virginia, Confederate war general. There was a statue of Stonewall Jackson, son of, son of Virginia, it's actually West Virginia now, but son of Virginia, Confederate war general. There was a statue of Jeb Stewart, son of Virginia, Confederate war general. And then there was a statue of Arthur Ashe, son of Virginia, professional tennis player. And I thought, that's odd, one of these statues is not like the others. <laughs> I don't know if there was a committee that put together and said, yeah, you know, we need on, on Monument Avenue to make this really impressive. A Confederate war general, Confederate war general, Confederate war general, professional tennis player. Okay, somebody thought that was a good idea. Then, not very long ago, just a couple years ago now, some people got to talking and they said, you know what? Maybe it's not the best idea that we have these statues commemorating these Confederate war generals. Maybe that's problematic in ways we hadn't considered before. And so, lo and behold, they started dismantling the statues, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, Jeb Stewart, and today, the only statue standing on Richmond's Monument Avenue is Arthur Ashe. You would think if someone erected a statue to you, that would be permanent. You'd think. But there's a time to build, and there's a time to tear down. So many things we give our life to, so many things we give our time to, don't last. How many of you can name all eight of your great-grandparents? You can name, maybe a few of you actually can, if you're kind of into your ancestry. How many of you can tell me what their jobs were? If you think you're so smart, let's go to all 16 of your great-great-grandparents. <laughs> because you see, these are important people to you. You don't exist without these people. Probably they sacrificed for your grandparents, your, your parents, you know. And yet we don't know who they are. They're gone. 
They were not permanent on this earth, and we don't really remember them. In 2020 and 2021, I was the interim pastor of a small uh, Baptist church in the foothills of Colorado, and uh, it was a church that was struggling because of the pandemic, and they had had a long-time lead pastor who had just retired. And so I was asked to come and speak for them, and they said, hey, we're looking for an interim pastor while we're pursuing a permanent pastor. Would you uh, come in and be our interim pastor? And I prayed about it and talked with Angie, my wife, about it, and we said, yeah, this would be a good thing for me to do. So I did. And at first, things went really well. There was a church of about 30 in the congregation, and then um, I took over in the fall, and then by Christmas, we had about 50, and things seemed to be going well. Uh, I was gratified to uh, have this pastoral ministry, and the church was happy to have me sort of handling things in the meantime while they had a search committee going. And things got to Easter, and I was very encouraged at Easter, and then things fell apart. Actually, things blew apart because some long-simmering conflicts going back five years or more in the congregation erupted volcanically. And I spent hours on my phone trying to talk people out of their trees and trying to say, no, this person's your brother in Christ. He's not your enemy. Why don't you trust each other? Let's work together. But lo and behold, some people left the church and then some people who probably shouldn't have been entrusted with leadership, we had to turn to for leadership because there weren't enough people. And then those people caused some other people to leave the church. Probably some people wished they had left the church who'd stayed at the church. But eventually, that church voted to close its doors in August of 2021. From 1953 to 2021, the lifespan of that church. I told my wife, the good news was, this wasn't my fault. The bad news was I couldn't stop it. I tried to help them and I couldn't. There's a lot of people put a lot of time over the life of that church and sacrificed for it. And today in that community there is no church that presents the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing lasts. So how secure is your job? Those of you who work outside the home. You sure that's going to last? How secure is your job if you work inside the home? You know, our kids, we, we spend time and money and effort to raise them, and we grow them, and we teach them, and we feed them, and then they turn 18, and then they leave. Or worse, sometimes they don't leave. <laughs> Maybe some things are permanent. I'll have to get back to you on that. So Solomon is telling us, nothing lasts under heaven. Hold that thought. But Solomon goes on to say, God's got it even when we don't get it. God's got it even when we don't get it. Verse 10, I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. God's got it even when we don't get it. We can't always understand what God is up to. We can't see around the next corner, but God can. God does. We can't discern God's plans or His big picture. His purposes are outside our control, often outside our comprehension. But God's got it even when we don't get it. 
Life's events are unfolding according to God's plan. Life is leading somewhere. History is going somewhere. That's important to remember because without God, life has no meaning and we have no significance. Without God, life has no meaning. But with God, life has purpose and meaning and significance. I know some of you have seen a tapestry from the back and the front. If you've ever looked at a tapestry, you can tell. If you look at the back side of it, even the next slide, Katrina, there you go. The back side of a tapestry is there on the left, and it's a mess. All these weird colors and threads that kind of appear and go and kind of disappear, and there's no pattern to it, and you can't see something, something a two-year-old did, and you put it on your fridge if you're their mom, but otherwise you wouldn't display that. Uh, they're, they're not even inside the lines. It's just, you know, that's the backside of a tapestry. Ah, but you flip it over, and then you see. This is how God is working in our universe and in our life. We only see the mess. We only see the what's going on. This is random. What's happened? This isn't right. This shouldn't be like that. But God has a plan, something he's weaving, a tapestry he's creating. And he knows what he's doing. He's got it even when we don't get it. Say that you woke up one morning and you were on an ocean liner. And you didn't know how you had gotten there. I don't know why you wouldn't know that. It's just an illustration. Let's go with it. <laughs> but you woke up on this ocean line. You looked out your, your window of your stateroom, and you said, okay, we're on the ocean somewhere. I get that. But I, I, don't, I don't know how I got here. I don't know where we're going. I don't know what's happening. And so you go outside, and you find a stateroom attendant. And you say, excuse me, sir. I know this is a weird question. Uh, can you tell me where we're going? And he says, well, I certainly. We're in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, and we're on our way to London. And you think, oh, okay, I don't really remember making these travel arrangements, but I can go with that. It's a destination. There's lots of things I could do in London. I could, I could go to a museum. I could visit the monuments. I could tour uh, Parliament and Big Ben. I, I could take in a show on the West End. I could try some of the restaurants, all the restaurants they have in London. I might even make some new friends in London. Yes, this has a destination. This trip has a purpose. But say also, second scenario, you wake up in the stateroom mysteriously on this ocean liner. You don't know where you are. You go out and you find your stateroom attendant. You say, excuse me, sir, where are we going? And he says, well, we're not going anywhere. You say, what do you mean? So we're just going in circles in the middle of the ocean. And so what's going to happen? So well, eventually we're going to run out of fuel and the ship's going to sink and we're all going to die. <laughs> Where's the purpose in that? Where's the meaning in that? There's no significance in that. And yet, so many people that you know, some of whom you know, live their life like that without understanding that life has a purpose, that life is going somewhere. Just thinking that they're just going to do thing after thing after thing, and one day they're going to die. And that's going to be it. But since God's got it, we can understand that life and history are going someplace. It's not just, life is not just a series of disordered, random, meaningless events going in circles. It's unfolding according to God's plan, God's design, God's purpose. We see that in the Bible. It's a story of creation and fall and the redemption and the coming restoration. 
that there's a destination, life has meaning, Christ is going to come and make all things new. God's got it. That's your big idea for this New Year's Day, 2023. But you might well ask, okay, God's got it, I got that. So what? So what? God's got it, okay, so what? Well, I have three suggestions for you, for us, on this New Year's Day. The first is this. Since God's got it, we can enjoy it. Since God's got it, we can enjoy it. Verse 12, Solomon continues, I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. That each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. Enjoyment of life is a gift from God. God wants you to find satisfaction in your work, in your family, in your leisure time, in your life. God wants you to enjoy your life more than you currently do in this coming year. You ever heard a preacher tell you that? <laughs> Enjoyment of life is a gift of God. I grew up in church. I grew up in a mainline kind of dead church in South Carolina. I thought, the perp when I was young, I thought the purpose of church was to train me to tolerate vast quantities of boredom. It's not. There is a rabbinical saying, this is not in the Bible, but this is an old rabbinical saying, and it's thought-provoking. God will hold us accountable for every permitted pleasure not taken. Think about that. You stand before the Lord on the, your day of judgment, and he says, hey, listen, I gave you this, I gave you that, I blessed you with this, and you didn't take it. Why is that? God will hold us accountable for every permitted pleasure that we don't take. You say, why didn't you take that? I meant that for you. I meant you to enjoy that. Now, this is not carte blanche, of course. We have to submit our enjoyment to that which is good. Because not everything is enjoyable in life, I get that. And not everything that's enjoyable is good. But joy is the second listed fruit of the Holy Spirit. It must be important to God. So let me put it to you. Do you enjoy your life? Do you enjoy your life? Really? If we asked your spouse, what would he or she say? What would your kids say? What would your parents say? Your coworkers? You enjoy life? Could your name legitimately be put on the list of people who most enjoyed life in 2022? The year-end lists that you see? If your name's not on that list, why not? What's holding you back? First suggestion, since God's got it, hey, we can enjoy it. Second suggestion, since God's got it, we should live into it. Since God's got it, we should live into it. Verse 14, Solomon continues, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Whatever is has already been, and what will be has been before, and God will call the past to account. And see, here Solomon comes back and gives us the solution to the problem of 
impermanence. Only God provides the solution to the problem of permanence because everything God does will endure forever. And God invites us to participate in what He's doing. See, we think we have to do these great things to achieve permanence. We think we have to build a great big company or a great family or a great ministry or have a statue built to us or something like that. But those things don't last. Companies don't last. Ministries don't last. Statues don't last. But we don't have to do these grandiose, awe-inspiring things. We only have to do what God wants us to do. And those things will last because God is in them. Whatever God does will endure forever, even seemingly small things. An encouraging conversation that you have with someone. Someone you dare to share Christ with, have a spiritual conversation with. That's going to last for eternity. A a, a note of encouragement that you send to someone. A, A Sunday school class that you teach. Ministering to a child. Ministering to a teen. An act of kindness to a stranger who's in need of kindness. These are small and simple things, but these things will last. Because everything God does will endure forever. So all we've got to do is figure out what God wants us to do. Are you clear on that in your own life? What God wants you to do? You know, the word, English word vocation has its root, the Latin word vocare, which means to call. In a sense, your vocation can be seen as your calling. And your calling, I'm sure, is much greater than whatever your day job is. But are you clear on that? It's okay if you're not, but make another New Year's resolution. Say, I'm going to gain clarity on my calling from God in 2023. I want to live into this life that God has given me. Because whatever God does through me, that's going to last for eternity. Heavenly reward. There are three large gates that lead into the Cathedral of Milan in Italy. And over one of the gates, there's an inscription in marble under a flower bouquet that says, the things that please are temporary. Over the second gate, there's a cross with this inscription, the things that disturb us are temporary. But over the central gate, there's a big inscription that says, eternal are the important ones. Things that please us are temporary. The things that disturb us are temporary, but eternal are the important ones. What might God do through you for eternity in 2023? What might God do through Centennial Covenant Church that reverberates for eternity in this coming year? Pray about that. Talk with others about that. Journal about that. Write it down. Commit to it. Live into it. God's got it. You can live into it. Greg Lavoie is an author who describes a a shriveled soul sitting in a spiritual recliner. And he says, abilities and gifts that never get cultivated and deployed until weeks become months and months turn into years. And one day, you're looking back on a life of deep, intimate, gut-wrenching, honest conversations you never had. Great, bold prayers you never prayed. Exhilarating risks you 
never took. Sacrificial gifts you never offered. Lives you never touched. And you're sitting in a recliner with a shriveled soul and forgotten dreams, and you realize there is a world of desperate need out there. And a great God calling you to be something, part of something bigger than yourself. You see the person you could have become and did not because you never followed your calling. My prayer for you this morning is that you won't be that person. Helen Keller said, life is either a grand adventure or it's nothing. I pray that your life will be filled, your year will be filled with soul-building adventure because God's got it. Since God's got it, first suggestion, you can enjoy it. Second suggestion, you should live into it. Third suggestion, since God's got it, we should stay with it. Since God's got it, we should stay with it. Verse 16, Solomon again. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Since God's got it, we should stay with it. Several years ago, I have, I have two boys, two sons. They're grown now, but when they were about 10 and 8, I decided that I wanted to share with them one of my very favorite movies, The Sting. 1970, that's 50 years old now, 1973, Academy Award winner for Best Picture, starring Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And if you haven't seen it, my goodness, do yourself a favor. Don't run out right this minute, but do yourself a favor. This is a really fun movie. Paul Newman and Robert Redford play two con artists, con men. And though they operate kind of outside the law, we root for them. Because what they're trying to do is they're trying to pull a big con on this really evil gangster, played by Robert Shaw. And so this a big complicated plan that they set up in order to convince this gangster, Robert Shaw, to give them a whole bunch of money, and then they're going to make off with it. And the film is just a really fun romp. One thing happens after another. My kids were a little young for some of it. Some of it went over their heads. Some few things I fast-forwarded. But we're sitting there watching this movie, and it comes to the big climax, The Sting, where they're going to pull the, big, the sting, the big con, on Robert Shaw. And this very elaborate setup with a lot of people who are kind of in on it. And you wonder if it's going to work. Because Robert Shaw's a dangerous guy, and we don't want bad things to happen to our heroes, Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And then just at the, the moment where you think, okay, here's it, What's gonna this is it, what's going to happen? Something goes wrong. Police come bursting in the room with guns drawn. And someone announces, FBI, this is a raid. Hands up, nobody move. Well, some people move, and there's some gunplay. And then shockingly, I'm sorry to spoil this for you, but the movie's 50 years old, come on. <laughs> shockingly, Robert Redford is shot, and he falls to the floor dead. And Paul Newman is shot, and he falls to the floor dead. Our two heroes we've been rooting for this whole movie, dead on the floor. And my younger son turned to me with tears in his eyes. He said, this is the worst movie ever. <laughs> and I told him in that moment, I said, well, okay, but stay with it. 
Stay with it. Because those two guys on the floor, they might not be as dead as you think. <laughs> and he did, and he wound up really liking the movie. You know, I go, my mind goes to Good Friday. You know, here are these disciples, and, and they sacrificed to follow Jesus of Nazareth. And, and they follow him around for three years. They've left their livelihoods behind. They, they, they've seen him heal the sick. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him raise the dead, and they've heard the words he's spoken of eternal life and a kingdom that's not of this world, and they've bought it. They've bought in. They say, yes, we're your disciples. We're your followers. Teach us. We'll do whatever you say. And then he's arrested. And he's put on a sham trial. And he's executed. He's hung on a cross. And he dies. And some of them had to be thinking, he was the worst Messiah ever. If I could have been there, if you could have been there, we could have said, okay, wait, but stay with it. Because this Jesus might not be dead for as long as you think. God's got it. Stay with it. Stay with it. You know, often, I, I, you know, I've been pastoring for a long time. I, I know life doesn't always feel like God's got it. It's not always possible to find joy in life, and we don't want to live into it anymore. And you ask good questions. Valid questions. Well, where was God when my marriage fell apart? Where was God when my career dream went into the toilet? Why did God make me this way that I don't want to be? Why doesn't God deliver me from fill in the blank? And these are legitimate questions. I'm not making light of them at all. All I want to tell you is, don't despair. God's word tells us, stay with it. Stay with it to the end, because God has a plan, God's in charge, and even after senseless tragedies come miraculous resurrections. You know, some atheists out there will just try to dismiss Christianity. Well, you know, Christianity doesn't explain the problem of evil, and when I've heard this, my rejoinder is, yeah, but what else does? At least the Bible tells us where evil comes from, that there's a, a fallen devil, or we live in a fallen world, we're fallen people. And the Bible gives us the promise of God's final judgment and bringing justice, that God will judge the righteous and the wicked in every deed. And then the New Testament lets us in on that whole resurrection thing. So God promises to make everything right. Jesus says, I make all things new. So stay with it in 2023 and beyond. Stay with it to the end. You know, it looks like Dorothy's never going to make it home to Kansas. Stay with it. It looks like Charlton Heston's never going to lead the Hebrews out of Egypt. Stay with it. It looks like this big shark is going to eat Roy Scheider. It looks like the Death Star is going to obliterate the fourth moon of the planet Yavin. Looks like the Titanic's going to sink. Wait a minute, that's a bad example. Scratch that one. <laughs> Looks like Frodo's never going to get home, uh, never going to get out of Mordor, but stay with it to the end, and then the end after that, and the end after that, and the end after that. 
Looks like Thanos is going to crush Iron Man. It looks like E.T. has died. Looks like Harry Potter has died. Looks like Ray from the latest Star Wars trilogy has died. But maybe they won't all be dead for as long as you think. God's got it. God's got it. So, we can enjoy it. We can live into it. We can stay with it. Today, this year, and beyond. Speaking of Charlton Heston, some of you have heard this story, but it fits so good it bears repeating. 1959, Charlton Heston was starring in what would be the best picture that year, Ben-Hur, set during the time of Christ under the Roman Empire, and the, directed by William Wyler. And Heston would win best actor, win best picture, it's a triumph. The centerpiece of this movie is a great big chariot race that they didn't have computers to help with in 1959. So they really had to build this stuff and they really had to get all these extras in all these costumes, real horses, real chariots, and then some you know, fake chariots that are on trucks and things like that to, to film this race. And so they get this enormous setup in place. And William Wyler calls out, okay, we ready? Ready, Mr. Wyler, ready, Mr. Wyler, ready, Mr. Wyler. The lighting, the makeup, the stunts, all uh, extras, everybody, Charlton Heston, everybody's ready. So, okay, take one. And they go into it, and they're filming the chariot race scene, and Heston, Heston loses his footing and tumbles out of the chariot. Say, so, okay, cut, reset, makeup, touch up, Mr. Heston, please. And they take all this time, and everything has to go back to square one. All right, chariot race scene, take two, ready, 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 Mr. Wilder. All right, and action. And they do it again. And the camera close up on Charlton Heston, and he's in the chariot, and he, again, chariot goes over a little bump, and he loses his footing and tumbles out of the chariot. And so William Wilder says, okay, let's reset, and then everybody take five. And all these people start going to work. And he walks up to Charlton Heston, and he says, Charlton, everything okay? What's going on? And Heston is apologetic, and he explains, there's a lot of time, a lot of people on the clock for this, but he says, I, I'm, I'm sorry, Mr. Wilder, it's just that, well, I know this is a close-up of me, and I, I, I'm trying to act like I'm winning the race, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to convey that reality to the camera, but every time I take my eyes off my feet, I lose my footing, and I slip. I'm really sorry. And William Wyler just smiled, and he put his arm around Charlton Heston. He said, listen, Charlton, you're the actor. I'm the director. Okay? It's your job to stay in the chariot. It's my job to make sure you win the race. When this movie is released, I promise you, you're going to win this race. You just stay in that chariot. Let me take care of the rest. Ladies and gentlemen, Centennial Covenant, God is both the author and the director of our life. It's his job to make sure we win the race. It's our job to just stay with him. Stay close to him.
Enjoy him, live into him, stay with him till the end. Because God's got it. Do you get it? Let's pray. Gracious Holy Father God, you who sent your one and only Son to be a sacrifice for our sin and more to bring resurrection life to all of us who will trust in your name. Gracious Lord God, we come to the start of another calendar year. And it's a time of hope and a time of opportunities we want to seize, a time of renewed, refreshed obedience and faith that we want to express. So Lord, grant us success in this. Encourage us in our faith. Remind us of who you are and whose we are in relationship to you. Lord, be our vision in this coming year and the rest of our lives and in the life of Centennial Covenant Church. This year and beyond. It's in the name of Jesus, your Son, and our Savior, for all our sakes that I pray. Amen.